Thank y'all. So I don't know how many of y'all have been able to sit right up here on the front row. Probably not very many because we're Baptists, but um, one of my favorite things on Sunday morning so far about being at First Baptist Enid is sitting right up here and being able to hear everyone from the balcony and the back and our choir sing and just sit and close my eyes. It is absolutely amazing. Um, This morning, if you want to open up your Bibles, we will be in Acts chapter 9. Many of us are familiar with this passage as the Damascus Road and the conversion of Paul. And we will look at several aspects of this passage this morning as we begin. Uh, But before we get there, I want to tell you a story. I have a picture up there of this door. And this door, there's nothing special at all about this door. This is a door at downtown Shawnee on the side of a building of Neil's Furniture Store, which the building is ancient. It's terrifyingly ancient. Um, Their elevator is not one that I would use. But this door is something that I painted whenever I was a graduated senior, my senior or summer of my senior year. I spent every morning for a week painting this door. And I bring that up because I come in on Monday to Neil's, and it was just a little summer job. I deliver furniture, I do maintenance around the building, like very small maintenance. Nothing like Tim does. He's amazing, but just like paint, right? Uh, things they didn't want to do. And I come in on Monday, and they go, water the plants. Okay, I got some paint for you. I need you to sand this door, which is, I looked up pictures of the building, and it was built in like early 1900s. That door was still there. So I had to sand this 100-year-old door, uh, get it ready to paint, and then paint it. And it took Every morning, I'd show up, first thing i do, water the plants, go out there, paint the door. And every morning, the sun is beaming down on me, because we're in Oklahoma, there's no shade. So I'm getting absolutely sunburned every morning. I'm doing this, make deliveries in the afternoon, over and over and over. I start taking pride in this work. Like, I've told Sally, whenever we started dating, we were going downtown, I was like, hey, that door, I painted that. Because so... <laughs> It started becoming a big deal for me. Like, I love this door because I'm putting all my blood, sweat, and tears into it. Getting, like, splinters that probably have asbestos in it. And I, I'm almost done. It's about Thursday. I finish up. I'm like, I make a delivery. Come in on Friday. My boss goes, hey, you and Nathan, you're going to go make a delivery. And everyone else is going to stay here. So we make the delivery. It's one pretty far out. Takes us all morning. And I come back, and I'm passing the door, and my door's done. Like, everything I had for the day, it's finished. I walk in. I was like, hey, what happened to my door? They're like, oh, Joe finished it. He did such a great job. I was like, man, I spent all week working on this door, and Joe comes in and finishes my door. Like, I was going to stay late to finish it. But the point of that is I put everything into this door. I had so much work into this door. And I wanted to be obedient. I wanted to be a good worker. I wanted to do what was asked of me. And at the end of the week, I got no credit for it. And that's a little bit what we're going to talk about today in this unseen obedience. This obedience that we might not get full recognition for. Because that's the point. The point of obedience isn't the outcome. It's not the recognition. It's none of that. The point of obedience is obedience. The point of obedience is service. The, the reason that we're going out and serving these schools isn't so we can get something out of it, just so we can show the love of Christ. And as Christians following Christ in obedience, our end goal is not to say, God, look at everything that I've done. But at the end of the day, say, God, look at what you have done. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. And that's what we see in my favorite Bible character, which is a weird one, Ananias. 
And we're going to talk about him a little bit, but there's, like I said, a couple aspects in the story of Acts chapter 9. So if you want to follow along with me as we get into this, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and it is a good bit uh, to Acts chapter 9, verse 22. And it starts off with, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and requested letters from the synagogue, or letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, Christians, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and through, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Since he is praying there, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And now he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this a man in Jerusalem who is causing havoc for those who called on his name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priest? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Pray with me, and then we'll get into this this morning. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word together as a community this morning. As you promise that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish what it intends. I pray this morning that our hearts are open and receptive to how you are speaking to us. As we pray, saying this morning about your holy ground, as we stand on your holy ground in your presence, in your spirit, Lord, I pray that we are receptive to what you are doing and that we are obedient to going where you are. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I want to summarize this briefly and take a second to recognize a couple aspects of this. So Saul, being Paul, as we know him throughout the letters in the New Testament, was not seeking to follow Jesus, right? He was going on this road to destroy the work that Jesus had been doing, the work of the disciples, the work of Christianity, and yet Jesus met him on that road and revealed his glory, blinding him in that moment. And then we see Ananias on the flip side of that. Ananias 
is nothing special. There's some tradition that hints at Ananias being a leader in the church of Damascus, but that doesn't make him any greater than any of us. This is a Christian who wants to love God, wants to serve God, wants to be obedient, wants to take care of his people, and he's sitting in prayer. God gives him this vision saying, go and do what I tell you to do. And that is it. These are normal guys. One guy we can consider to be an adversary, someone who hates Christianity. And we see a lot of that today. So whatever image that you might have of someone just against Christianity, imagine that person. And then Ananias being any of us, and God saying, go pray for them. Go pray for them. And that's where we get to our first point this morning. And looking at verses 1 through 9 is God meets us where we are. God meets us where we are. And for a second, just think back to the moment that you recognized and were introduced to God's grace. The moment that he showed you and brought you to salvation. And imagine where you were sitting. Our stories are all different. Something that we talked about on a Wednesday night about two weeks ago is all of our stories are different. But they all should be leading to Christ. So we all received grace in a different way, whether that be sitting in one of these pews at seven, eight, nine years old, being baptized, being able to grow up in a Christian home, or whether that be being in your 20s or 30s, never really hearing of grace in the gospel before, and then coming to the realization that God is holy and calls you to that salvation to purify you. God meets us where we are. There's very few of us, I would like to imagine, that were on the road to Ponca City to arrest and persecute Christians, right? I really hope nobody was, like, with that goal, going to a neighboring city. But that's where Paul was. That's where the Apostle Paul, the adv- not the Apostle, Saul, the adversary to the church, was met by Christ. We have this assumption inside of us, and we like to think in this way of, well, I was going down a bad road, and that's when I found God, and my life completely changed. Reversing that, looking at Paul, looking at our own lives, and realizing we're going on a road towards destruction. Paul is on a path to destruction, of violence, of havoc that has been in his wake in the city of Jerusalem. He was there a couple chapters before at the stoning of Stephen, holding the cloaks, of the men who would kill the first Christian martyr. As they stoned him to death, he held their cloaks and officially approved. The temple's representative officially approving the death of this man. And that lit something in him of, I, I want to pursue God. The God in his mind, the righteousness in his mind, the law, the tradition that he held, he believed that he already had God. He believed that he was doing the work of the Lord. He was preserving the faith. He was in the right in his mind of these people are questioning the temple. These people are questioning Yahweh. These people are leading my Jewish brothers and sisters away from the faith. I need to destroy them for God. So his path was not one of seeking God. And we don't know what inner turmoil he might have been facing. But his path was a fulfillment of God's will. And that's when Jesus met him on that road to destruction, blinding him with his glory and saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that moment of blindness, in that moment of seeing Jesus in his glory, saying, who are you, Lord? Every assumption that Saul had, every presumption, every idea, every tradition, every belief that Saul had, Believing that he was the instrument of God's justice was completely wiped away in God's glory. 
And he realized, I'm not attacking people questioning God. I'm attacking God himself. The Messiah has come and I have rejected him. The Messiah has come and I'm not an instrument of faith. I'm an instrument of Satan. I am the enemy and this is where, whether it's a road of destruction that the church looks at this, this testimony of drug abuse and abuse and all of these things, whether it's that road or you are just a child who have yet to receive salvation, we are all on a road to destruction. We are all on the same road that Paul was on in this moment. I'm going to be interchanging those because it's the same guy. I'm sorry. It's hard to keep that straight. But it is not natural for us to seek God. It is not natural for us to seek to be saved. And if you ask most atheists, you ask most people who don't follow Christ, hey, do you want to be saved? Why do I want to be saved? What do I need to be saved from? I'm happy. I'm having fun. I'm doing all these things. And they can't see the path to destruction. We could not see the path to destruction. Paul could not see it because he was righteous. But what does Psalm 51.1 say? 51.5, sorry. Behold, I brought you forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it is Christ that justifies us. This is where God found Saul. Saul did not find Jesus. Jesus found Saul on this road as an adversary in the same sin that he had been born in. The same sin that he was living in, believing himself to be righteous. And it was God here who confronted that sin, saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you sinning against me? Why are you rebellious against me? And God is a personal God that knows our name, but also knows our sin. He knows our struggle. He knows our burden. He knows how we rebel against him and his word. And he also knows the false righteousness we hold to. And he looks at Saul with this piercing question, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, in being confronted in his sin, being confronted by a holy and righteous God, being conceived in sin, living iniquity, following this path, his sin is confronted by the holiness of God. His sin is confronted by the holiness of God as all of ours is because we cannot interact with a holy God, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, and do anything but to repent and to believe. As we are confronted by the holiness of God, our response as his was, is repent and believe. As Jesus says, Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom has come. Jesus came to us and the kingdom was brought down to us in form of Christ so that we could dwell as his people now and later. We are not necessarily just waiting for the end, for the coming of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God has come near in Christ. That fulfillment, or that has been fulfilled and we, his people, are his kingdom. It is this now and not yet idea of we look forward to his glory. We long for his glory. We're not necessarily excited about death, but we anticipate the inevitable and being able to dwell with Him for His return. And now we also are confronted in our sin because of His holiness, because of His kingdom. God meets us where we are, bringing His kingdom to us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our hatred of His holiness. But He finds us, He changes us, He makes us new, and He calls us to follow. 
It is not an impersonal salvation. It is not this religion of a distant God that we have to go through some mediator to speak to, but it is a personal God that knows your name, that calls you to follow, that lets you be a part of his work. And that's our second point with God invites us to follow him. There's two callings that we see here. When God confronts Saul on the road in 10 through 17, he can, no, before that, but 10 through 17 with Ananias, when Jesus confronts Saul on the road, it is not this disconnected, impersonal calling of you're doing bad things against me. I don't really know who you are because you're an in, insignificant speck. You're a mist. You're a vapor and you can't do anything against me, but I'm going to blind you in my glory. It's not that. Though we be but a moment, but a mist, but a vapor, like we talked about, I believe, last week, God called out to him and said, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? He called out to him in the moment that he is in to call him to salvation and reveal himself to him. And in the same way, God came to Ananias in a vision as this faithful disciple is in prayer. He's pursuing the Lord. He's probably praying for the safety of his people that God would deliver them from persecution that is inevitably coming and they know it is coming. They know Saul is on the way to arrest and kill them, take away their families. And he's in prayer And God comes to him and says, Ananias, I have instruction for you. And it's the same thing we see in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10, as the young prophet Samuel, still a child, is laying in bed, and he hears this soft whisper of Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And he wakes up and he goes to Eli and was like, hey, are you calling me? He said, no, go back to bed. Does this three times. And finally there's this realization, and he answers with, speak, your servant is listening. We see this all through the scripture of this personal God reaching out to his people, calling them by name. You have the prophets, you have kings, you have the disciples, and now you have his church of Christ calling out to us, calling us to repentance, calling us to action, calling us to be a part of what he's doing, his work, his way, following him, being close to him. And in these three examples, you see a humble response. A response many of us are familiar with. The child Samuel saying, speak, your servant is listening. The blinded Paul saying, Lord, who are you, Lord? The faithful Ananias saying, here I am, Lord. You see these humble responses, and there is a great humility in that. Humility, I think, is something I struggle with, but I think great many people struggle with understanding just what is humility. Is humility when someone says, hey, you did a good job, saying, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm okay, I don't need that recognition. Or is humility just recognizing who you are in light of greatness? And whenever we come and we interact and we experience God, recognizing as he shows us who he is, recognizing I am unworthy of this. We see that the people, re- just recognizing in Scripture, the people seeing the angels who were just in the glory of God, The angels not having glory in themselves, but reflecting the glory that they dwell in. People falling on their faces. You hear stories all the time. People like, oh, I can't wait to see an angel. I don't want to see an angel because I will die. Like, it would just, I'd be terrified. The shepherds were terrified. Gideon was terrified. Everyone is terrified of, I'm not worthy of just the effect of the glory of God, not even the fullness of him. But we see this great humility and obedience in these three examples because they didn't know the command God would have for them. 
Saul on his knees, blinded on the road, didn't know in that moment. Like he knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He knows full and well, in this moment, I'm probably going to die. Because everyone who has done less than I have, have been struck down by the Lord. I might die here. And he says, who are you, Lord? And God says, get up and go. I got a place for you. You need to go and sit. He calls him to that salvation, that grace there. He's killing his people and Jesus calls him to grace with Samuel recognizing, Lord, I'm your servant. I hear you. What do you have to say to me? Not knowing what the command would be. With Ananias sitting in prayer, the Lord calling out to him, his response not being, Lord, what do you want? The response being, here I am, waiting, patiently, obedient, anticipating your command. There's a humility in that. And we need that same humility, just even if we're just in worship on a Sunday morning as we're singing praises to the Lord. As we spend time in His Word week after week after week, we may never hear the audible voice of God this side of heaven, but we have His Word, we have His commands, we have His grace and the salvation that He gives to us. And even just with that recognizing, in light of what I've experienced in this life, I need to humble myself before you. One of my favorite authors, one of my favorite books, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writing the book, Cost of Discipleship, he has this quote that says, to not deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is he leads the way, keep him close. As we sang this morning, we're walking on holy ground. The point of that is not as we're going out, this holy ground is following us around, but being close to Christ of we're on holy ground in his presence and where, where else would we want to go? I don't remember the song. It's really popular and I hate that I don't remember it, but I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. It's the, and I hate that I can't remember. Oh, fount. What is it? Come thou fount. Thank you. It's one of my favorite hymns too. Uh, Come thou fount. I'm prone to wonder. Why would we want to wonder other than our pride, our self-righteousness, our sinfulness, taking us away from the righteousness and the presence of God rather than humility and humbling ourselves, just saying, Lord, here I am. One of my biggest struggles and something that I missed out a lot on in high school, missed out a ton of mission trips that I could have gone on. It's something I'm very grateful being a part of a church that does and lives missions daily, but also goes to the nations. But I missed out on these great mission trips all over the world because I kept sitting there saying, God, tell me if I need to go, tell me if I need to go, tell me if I need to go, rather than just understanding we're called to go. And this is a door I could have walked through, and I didn't because I was hiding behind this veil of I really don't want to, so unless God, like, you know, shining light in the sky tells me to go, I'm not going to do it. Well, he had already called me to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I just didn't. I wasn't humbling myself, and I was not living a life in many different aspects of here I am, Lord, use me. So we see this here. If God calls us to go where he is, and our only job as believers, as those who have been saved by grace, is to look at our holy God and say, here I am. I'm ready. I don't care what it is. I don't care what the cost is. I'm ready to go because I'm on borrowed time, and your re- my resources are what you gave me. I'm ready to go and use them for your glory.
And there's beauty in that, but it takes humility. But there's also a danger in obedience. And it's one of the things that makes Ananias stand out so much to me. As you're reading through this, you see Ananias, Ananias's uh, humanity, his fear. And Lord says to him, like, I have this guy for you. And his response is, people have told me about this guy. He's going to kill me. Like, I'm, I'm afraid for my life. I'm afraid for my church. What, what does the Lord respond with? It isn't this response of, Ananias, I'm going to protect you. It's going to be okay. Your life is going to be okay. Your life is in my hands, which it is. That means, like, several different things. But it's not, you're going to continue a long and happy life here on this earth. What God's response to Ananias of go and serve me, go and serve Saul, go pray with him. His response to Ananias in his fear is, go, I have, he's my chosen instrument. I have a plan for his life and I want you to be a part of it. Ananias could have walked through that door and been met with a spear. Just like many of our brothers and sisters for the last 2,000 years. One of the stories that always stands out to me is, it was a movie a couple years ago, book's really good. Um, I actually heard, I don't remember his name, but one of the Saint boys last year, but the story of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, all of those guys who were with them who met death by the end of a spear after months of working with the tribe. And one of the things that stood out to me, I remember as a teenager, I think it came out, we heard a lot about it at our church and with our youth group, talked about it quite a bit. But there's this thing, one of their sons ran up to them as they're boarding the plane that morning and said, hey, you have your gun, use it if you need it. And he looked at his son and said, I'm ready to go, they're not. And he gets on a plane to meet his death. And that's the same perspective, the same lifestyle, the same choices that Ananias is making here. Of God has called me to go, I don't know if I'm going to make it out. I don't know if I'm going to be shipped to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to my church and my people and my tribe. But my God has told me to go and I'm going to do it. And he walked forward in that obedience, in that humility, recognizing God has called me to do this work. Because, and what he did not know is God had already began a work in Saul to do great things to him. He told him, I'm going to use him to reach Gentiles and kings and Israelites. And you're like, okay, that's really cool. But the scale of the work of Apostle Paul, what God has done t- through him, through the journeys, through the letters that we still read today, and then ultimately his death in Rome. Ananias, there's no way you could imagine that. The church is a fledgling. It's barely getting up. A couple thousand people have come, and they're all starting to get persecuted. The Romans are after them. The Jews are after them. And then the Apostle Paul walks into the picture through God forming him, and it just explodes. And Ananias is the instrument that began that work. God was able to use him in this role, and he would have never seen the impact in the longevity of Paul's ministry. But he got to be a part of the beginning of that because God called him to that obedience. And with that, and you see it every day in this church as we are a missions church and we're familiar with the call to go. We have friends in other countries today that we've seen recently that know for a fact in the coming months they might be arrested and some of them know they're going to be arrested and yet they're faithful. We're a disciple-making church and we're familiar with the call to humility, making disciples, being vulnerable with one another and growing. We're a serving church that has opportunities in our community every day to serve and we know there's a cost to that. But like Ananias, we may never see the danger that sits in each of these things. We don't know with the amount of mission trips we do, we don't know if one day one of us might not come back. We don't know with disciple-making the vulnerability and the lives that we will have to take to bear 
loving people through struggles and temptations and sin and helping them get to a place where they're obediently following Christ. And maybe it's us having to be vulnerable. That's a cost that is heavy to bear. And opening up about the sin that we're holding so close to us and so secretly and just saying, I need to confess this. I need to come forward. We're familiar with that, but we go in faithfulness. There's a cost to serving the community, but we recognize that obedience is not measured by outcome. It does not matter the outcome of what we did last week, what we do this week, what we do in the months coming, because we know as a church, we are serving as God has called us to serve. And that was actually told to me by a former student a couple months ago, because I'm struggling, rewind a couple months back, I'm struggling with this idea of, is what I'm doing making an effect? If you've taught Sunday school, served in ministry, gone on the mission trip, done Awanas or VBS, you know this feeling of, is what I'm doing making an effect? So I call one of my former students. He's just graduated college. I'm like, man, I just feel down. And the first thing he said to me is, man, our obedience isn't measured by the outcome of it. And it shook me because I'm the guy who discipled him and now he's teaching me. And it shook me. And I've held that with me for about four months now of repeating it over and over and over. So as we go in obedience, Ananias did not know the outcome of what tomorrow looked like. We do not know the outcome of the obedience that we are to have in Christ. But we do know that when God calls us, when we see his holiness, we have no choice but to repent, to believe, and say, God, use me. When he calls out and says, who among you is going to go to the nations? Who among you is going to minister to the homeless population here in Enid? Being ready as believers and say, God, use me. I don't care what it looks like, I'm going to do it. When it just the lost in our community, people who don't want to follow Christ, maybe they've been hurt by the church, maybe they're using it as an excuse. It doesn't matter because there are lost people around us every single day and God has called us to love them, to share the gospel with them, to be the hands and feet of Christ in their lives. Are we ready to humble ourselves and say, God, use me? We see this over and over and over, just like Ananias, calling, God calling them to obedience. He answered, not because he knew the outcome, but because he knew the impact of God's holiness and transforming the lives of those around us. We, as those who have been transformed and have witnessed salvation, we cannot look at the lost around us and say, they're too lost, there's no point. They're too far gone, there's no point. Because we know who we were, We know who we were more than anybody else does. No matter how much we add in our testimony, there's always stuff that we have to keep back because we're so ashamed of it. But we know Christ changed that. Even the deepest secret, Christ transformed that. So if we've been transformed, we have no place in saying we can't go. That nation's too far lost. That community's too far lost. These people, there's there's a language barrier I'll never be able to break. God is powerful enough to break it. So we go because we have been called to go. And we go because we believe that God transforms lives. And that is what we see. And I just want to read it, 18 through 22. The last section of this. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this a man of Jerusalem who's causing havoc for those who called on his, this name 
and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to chief priests. But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by providing, sorry, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This man who was seeking to destroy the church ended up confounding those who were a part of his group already, the Jews, saying, hey, we were wrong. He's the Messiah. He's the one that we've been looking for. He's the one we've been waiting for. And you see a complete transformation of his life, of someone who was so zealous about his tradition and his culture and his people that he was willing to take the lives of others to preserve what they had built to preserve the temple that Jesus looked at and said, you see that temple, I can tear it down and in three days rebuild it. As we see now that being his body and the temple that is Jesus Christ being resurrected after three days. Jesus looked at everything that they had built in their religion and their customs and their tradition and said, I can destroy all of it and it will be better in me. And that is what Paul experienced is we, like, there, there's something in us as people that we're proud of things. And that, I think that's okay to an extent. Like, we're proud of this church. It's a beautiful sanctuary. But at the end of the day, if it was just gone, we'd be okay. We see churches in, uh, in Maui right now, which we need to be praying for them sincerely and genuinely and constantly as they're rebuilding after that tragic fire. But churches in that community this morning are worshiping and praising God without a building on the ashes of their entire community because they're okay, they have Christ. Whatever we build is nothing because it is only about what Jesus does and his holiness and the transformation that he brings into our lives. And that transformation is evident here in the life of Paul as he goes from a zealot killing believers to a zealot living for Christ loving people, and ultimately met his death. I love what God tells Ananias here of, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer. Is It's not this, oh, he's not off the hook. He's going to pay for what he's done. But this realization of he's going to be willing to suffer for me because of the transformation that I make in his life. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was tossed out of towns. He was mocked. He was ridiculed and ultimately put in house arrest and executed in Rome. And he did that because he saw the transformation that Jesus made in his life and said, I want this for everybody around me. I want this for my people, for the Gentiles over there. Because if you imagine, Saul is killing Christians who were Jews. These are his people of the tribes of Judah, of God's nation. He's killing them. How much more willing would have he been to kill Gentiles? Because as a good Jew, he would have hated Gentiles. It had nothing to do with the dirty Samaritans, nothing to do, yeah, Samaritans, nothing to do with the Romans, nothing to do with the Greeks. He wanted God to come and wipe the Romans off face of the earth, reestablish the kingdom of David, and that's what he was building. And then this same guy gets turned around, transformed, and God says, hey, you're going to go to all those nations. You're going to go to Italy, you're going to go to Macedonia, you're going to go to all these people that you formerly hated sharing the gospel. And then... Above all of that, when the church did struggle and said, well, these Gentile Christians, they need to do this, this, and this in order to be a really good Christian. Paul stood up and said, no, they don't. Like, I did all that, and it meant nothing. And in fact, he argued with Peter. He was at odds with the council, which had several apostles on it in Jerusalem. And you see that through his letters of him standing up and defending Jesus only. As we saw at Falls Creek this year, Jesus, period. Nothing but Jesus. So he was not only willing to go, but he was willing to continue to be ridiculed by other Christians 
for salvation only through Jesus, not through these extra steps. So God made him suffer, but he was willing to do that suffering because the, eye, the scales fell from his eyes, but the scales also fell from his heart. He was able to see Christ. He was able to have this relationship and to be bought and purchased by salvation. And if you need more evidence of Paul standing on this principle of Jesus only, just read his letters. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift from God. A man who built his own righteousness, who was raised in the temple, who, as he says, a Jew of Jews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, standing there and saying, everything that I built was nothing but dirty rags. And now I stand before a holy God saying, it is a gift from him, and there is nothing I could have done to experience what I'm now experiencing. And he experienced it all. He was next to the Holy of Holies. He was in the temple. He saw the practices. He lived as his parents instructed him to live, and culture around him told him to do. And he realized none of that means anything without Jesus. And for us as a church, nothing matters if we don't have Jesus. I love our hymns, but they don't matter without Jesus. I love our churches. They don't matter without Jesus. Nothing that we hold dear matters if we're not transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see here that true conversion comes only from interacting with a holy and living God. And what I love about that is it's not necessarily a choice in that way, is you're changed. Now we have this choice of coming to salvation and giving our lives to Christ as we experience His holiness, but you don't walk away the same regardless. You either know for a fact this is what I am denying, or you know for a fact this is what I've given my life for. And I remember the moment for myself that I experienced this grace, and I shared it last time I preached, but standing in worship with my youth group, hating His holiness, hating my church, hating all of this stuff, just bitter and angry and hateful and recognizing God is meeting me in this and he must love me because I hate him so much. And I was changed. I did not have to follow him. But if I, I knew in that moment, I'm either walking away as a rebel or I'm walking forward in faith as a faithful disciple. We have this, this holiness and as we interact with it, we cannot walk away the same and both Ananias and Paul understood that. For Paul, it was this understanding of, I'm blind. I saw something that just doesn't make sense. I, it has to be the Messiah. Understanding and completely changing the trajectory of his life. So much so that the Christians are sitting there saying, what just happened? I know the salvation. I see Jesus. Some of them saw Jesus raised from the dead. But the change in this guy's life is like nothing we've seen in somebody's life. And then Ananias is walking away saying, I was able to be a part of God's work. I mean, you don't walk away. And those who have been on mission trips, who have prayed with people to receive salvation, you don't walk away from those opportunities the same. You don't get back from like a, a mission trip to like Tulsa and come back to Enid and say, man, everything's going to be normal. Like you come back changed because you have now partnered with God in what he is already doing and the work that he is doing in the gospel. And that's the thing, like... 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. 
We are made new in Christ, and we cannot go back. We are different, and we are changed. And I've, I've been able to work with, work for, be in several different churches, and there's a big distinction between what I would recognize as a dying church and a growing church, and there's no in-between. There's no mediocre, lukewarm churches. It's either you're shrinking or you're growing. Growth isn't always numerically. Most of the time, it's spiritual. And most of the time, death is not numerical. It's spiritual. A church that is going and finding where God is working is a church that is growing. And I'll, I'll go bigger. A denomination that is going and finding where God is working is a denomination that is being faithful, recognizing who Jesus is, and they're growing. A denomination that isn't, and they're focused inward, they're focused on what they can do, they're focused on what they can get, they're focused on w- sitting and waiting, they're not moving forward. God is always moving forward. God is always calling people to salvation. It's just, are you a part of that or are you not? Because we understand that the transformation that Jesus brings in the gospel is not something that's just normal. It's something that peaks and continues to grow. And the the epitome of that is getting to the point of experiencing the glory of God in eternity. And then I have this question is, why is it so important that we spend time in prayer and studying God's word? And it is so important because we cannot experience God and stay the same. Why is it important we go on mission? Why is it important that we serve? Why is it important that we serve in our church and out of the church? Because we cannot experience God and stay the same. We continue to be transformed, and transformation is evidence of salvation. Those who are transformed and see that transformation in their life, there's rarely a moment of, am I saved? Like, you see this active growth in your life. But it is also evidence of a growing and obedient Christian. There are Christians that we get to a point, whether it be discouragement or trauma or things in life that just cause us to stumble, that we use this as an excuse of saying, I, I'm just done. Like, I've done it long enough. I've served the Lord long enough. I just, I can't wait for the Lord to just come back or for me to just go with him. And we hear all the time, if you're here, God is still using you. If you're here, God is still working through you. Continue to experience that transformation both in your lives and in the lives of others. Something I told my youth group, not this one, my last one a couple years ago, was I don't want to be the guy, and I have been the guy, but I never want to be the guy again who I feel God calling me to share the gospel with someone, and I don't. And then a couple weeks later, someone else got to, and that person came to Christ. I don't want to miss out on what God is doing. I want to be a part of what God is doing. And sometimes that looks like getting rid of that burden and our sin and getting these things out of the way and spending more time with God so we can experience those things and hear his voice clearly as he calls us to serve. And this morning, we're going to have to ask the question. As we experience in worship, we experience it through the word, this, this holiness of God, the glory of God. We ask two questions. Is, are you being called to turn to the saving grace of Christ and salvation? is you felt God calling you to be saved. You felt God calling you and saying, come to me, be done with the world, repent and believe, join the kingdom of God. Or the second is, are you being called to action, to share the gospel and to witness the transformation of another? And I'm telling you that if you're living, breathing, and have blood pumping through your body this morning as a believer, you've experienced the salvation and grace of Christ, then you're being called to do this. I don't know what it looks like. It might be with your neighbor. It might be with someone in Panama next July. You are being called to serve and to call upon the name of the Lord, praying for people, and also share the gospel with them so they can experience the same transformation that you've been given. Because it is a gift from God. Nothing we deserve. Nothing that we earned. So why would we hold that gift from someone else? 
So we are challenged this morning with three challenges, and then we'll pray an invitation. Is first, repent, because God is meeting you where you are this morning, whether that is a call to salvation or a call to action. Live on mission. The Christian life is truly an adventure. And you'll never know the impact of your obedience or what God is doing in someone else's life. And the third one is spend time with Jesus this week because we cannot spend time with God and continue our lives unchanged. Because as we see in this passage, God has the authority to call us to obedience. God is holy and will never leave us unchanged. And when God calls you to obedience this morning, how are you going to answer? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for everything that you have done for us in salvation, in the grace that you've given us, in the blessings that you give us daily, whether that be the breath in our lungs or a a good diagnosis, Lord. I pray that you continue to walk with us as a church, showing us where you are so that we can meet you there, so that we are called to where you are working. We're able to see life-changing effects of the gospel. This morning, I pray that in our lives, we're able to see that change, whether it be a call to salvation, of finally stepping forward and saying, God, I want to follow you. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. I can only be saved and have a relationship with Jesus through you and what you do in our life. Or whether it be sitting on the fence of going to Kansas City, going to Panama, going to the homeless here in Enid who you love and are made in your image, whether it be going to the populations in Enid that just need to hear your name, need your love, and needs their needs met, Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to say, Lord, hear me, that you would humble us and say, Lord, here I am, send me, use me, And allow me to be a part of what you're doing in my community, Lord, because I am changed and I want to see other people changed. I want to see your transformation. I want to see my community healed. I want to see my nation healed. I want to see the world following you as it is your will that none should perish, but that all should come to know the gospel, Lord, that all should come to know you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you have any questions this morning, you'd like to come down here and pray, you'd like any questions about salvation or missions or anything like that, I'll be up front for a little bit as Dakota leads us in worship.